Brother Todd just told me I could preach till 2.30. I don't think I got it in me. <laughs> you can open your Bibles back to 2 Peter. And we made it. Chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to read to us verses 1 through 13. And I would like to preach through that and then sort of close us in sort of a benediction by reading the final verses of the letter. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets in the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise... We are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you um, for another opportunity um, together to open your word. Father, I pray that your spirit would move among us. God, that you would teach us your truth. And Father, that you would show us what it means for us to be eager and long for and hasten even your second coming. We look to it, we hope in it, and Father God, my prayer when we leave here is that we wholeheartedly believe it. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Well, in chapter 3, Peter moves sort of from heretics um, to encouraging the faithful. Now, there, there obviously is still judgment language, and there's some things that we'll talk through that'll feel a little bit more like chapter 2, but I do feel like chapter 2 is he just sort of cracks open the heart's 
of false teaching in the hearts of those that follow him, uh, them and the, uh, the, the temptation and vulnerability of all of us in being susceptible to that false teaching. That's sort of the crescendo of, of what he's writing about and what he's writing for. You can hear his pastoral heart and passion and concern for their souls. And here, he's encouraging them more in the sense that if you noticed in verse 1, verse 8, verse 14, and verse 17, he calls them beloved. You know, I think a lot of times when we hear what we would classify as fire and brimstone preaching, it doesn't feel loving. And to be fair, maybe you've heard preaching on hell and judgment and those type things, and it, and it wasn't done in a loving manner or in a loving tone. Um, but brothers and sisters, just because we fear that we may offend someone or somebody might think we're mad or being mean, we, we can't detract from the truths of Scripture. But I do want to say this again to sort of follow up from the previous sermon, in that our passion for souls is what drives us most to communicate the truth. Like a deep desire and understanding, first a desire for their salvation and an understanding of what it means for them eternally if they are not saved. And there's one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. And God has a plan A in communicating this wonderful message of salvation. And look around. It's us. That's the plan. <laughs> There's not a backup plan. The plan is the living, breathing, moving body of Christ on this earth, living in a way that shows the glory and richness and treasure that our Savior is to us, while at the same time communicating with words. The gospel is a message with words. There's no such thing as living the gospel. Use words if necessary. Okay? Throw that coffee cup out. <laughs> like, take that shirt. Actually, don't even take it to the thrift store. Like, I don't take heretical stuff to the thrift store. I just throw it away. Okay? But seriously, like, we, we, we must have a passion, a passion for the souls of those that are around us. And so we communicate these truths as Peter did with a pastoral heart. And he, he shows his love for these people in this chapter well as he calls them and reminds them that they are... Beloved, Peter understood that the saints need to be encouraged. And he understood the difficulty that they were in trying to persevere in a world that was anti-Christian. He's reminding readers of truths they already know from the Old Testament. And he's also reminding them of Christ's teaching from his previous letter. As he said, he's stirring their minds to familiar truths. And this, brothers and sisters, is necessary. The stirring, the remembering... The reminding is absolutely a necessary part of our Christian walk and our, our growth in the Spirit. Our sanctification, that's the word I was looking for. Our sanctification, stirring and remembering and being reminded is a necessary part of our sanctification. I love what he does in verse 2. It's fascinating actually to me. He says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord. Let me back up. In the predictions of the holy prophets, he's pointing them to the Old Testament. He's pointing them to the Old Covenant. You should remember those things, but watch what he does. And, I'm sorry, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter links together the message of the prophets of the Old Testament, of Christ and the apostles. Both teach that there is one message about God, His kingdom, and His way of salvation. To be clear, the Old Testament 
is pointing to Jesus Christ. The Gospels are, here He is. The Epistles are, He's coming back. The Bible is about Jesus. It's pointing to Christ. There's no such thing as, as this Christian think, there is such thing of it, there's no truth to this Christian thinking that somehow the Old Testament is now to just be forgotten or pushed away. I mean, Peter says, don't, don't forget what the prophets taught. And he links it with what the apostles are teaching about the Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ, in verse 3, he says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Now, now these scoffers, I do think they can fit into the category of the false teachers, but I do think there's a distinct difference in that these are just scoffers, hecklers. If, if any of you, man, I know we got some Bibb County kids in here. Um, let me tell you, if you go play Bibb County in baseball, um, they, got, they, have, they have accommodated the hecklers in the outfield, um, I guess to get them away from their parents so they don't really hear what they're saying to those outfielders. But they've built them a deck around the back side of the outfield fence, and a lot of high schools do this. And so this, this, this scoffing or this heckling is almost just like just being antagonistic, just kind of like, think of like a woodpecker, just like just over and over and over and over and over again, just on you about what you believe, on you about what you're doing, just over and over and over and over. And that's this idea of, of scoffing. Notice what they'll say. He says, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? And, and so particularly, as this letter has had the tone of, of in pointing these Christians and ourselves this morning to look to and long for and be ready for the second coming of Christ, he's saying there are going to be those that will scoff you because of that. They're going to make fun of it. And the logic here, according to Peter, as he continues to quote what these scoffers will say in verse 4, he says, "...for ever since the fathers fell asleep..." All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, we might read that and go, okay. I mean, they believe in God, right? They believe in creation. Not only do they believe in God, they believe that God Himself created it. So, so what are they saying necessarily with the way that they are communicating this? Or what is at the root of their scoffing? So I'm going to link it back to the false teachers. One of the false teachings of today and one of the false teachings of the first century was this idea that's called deism. It's an acknowledgement that God exists and that God created all things, but it's that God is uninvolved. That God just sort of created everything and He's there, but He's way, 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 way off. And we're just living here, just kind of doing whatever we want to do, living as we please, or whatever kind of suits our, our fancy. And so this deism, actually I read a quote in my study on, on this idea of deism. This is not a God who thunders from the mountain. Not a God who will serve as judge. This undemanding deity is more interested in solving our problems and making people happy. In short, God is something like a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He's always on call taking care of any problems that arise, professionally helps His people to feel better about themselves, but this is the epitome of the deist thinking, and does not become too personally involved in the process. And so these scoffers are essentially mocking the Christian doctrine of this perseverance, 
of this longing, of this continuing to stay faithful regardless of the circumstances. And part of this false teaching, or sort of a sect or a variant of this false teaching, are these scoffers that make fun of over and over and over and over again. And their logic is, God spun this into orbit, He's uninvolved now, so just chill out. Notice what Peter says. Verse 5, he really is an incredible, of course inspired by the Spirit, an incredible apologist. He says, For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. Okay, listen, at this point, they're on the same page. God created the heavens, and things have been the same as they were from the beginning. So they're acknowledging... Peter is acknowledging what they acknowledge and that God created everything. But notice what he says, verse 6. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So evidently, part of this scoffing and making fun of uh, the fact that these believers are to look forward to the second coming of Christ as part of their logic is, look, nothing's changed since the beginning. There's no reason to worry about a second coming because they understood the second coming to be communicated as a time of judgment, which it will be. And so part of their reasoning for rejecting the second coming and believing this deist thinking that God is, yeah, He's definitely out there, but He's completely uninvolved and He's there if we need Him, sort of like our therapist or our divine butler, as that author said. And so they have no reason to be worried about judgment. Now think about how convenient that is. Seriously, try to. Just for a second. What if there's no judgment? How concerned are you with holiness? If there's no judgment, how concerned would you be for obedience? Right? I mean, you can be or you can't be. There's no reality. There's no consequence. What's the big deal about being reminded? What's the big deal about forgetting? And so, brothers and sisters, if we lose the idea of the reality in the clear scriptural teaching from Genesis to Revelation that there will be a judgment and we will answer for sins, then anything goes. That's what they're after. That's part of the freedom promised in chapter 2. And so Peter says, they're wrong. And listen to what he says. I I think there's at least, is it two or three? Sorry, I'm... Two. Two ways he exposes. First, he agrees in that he says God created through His Word. Yes, Psalm 33, 6, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, God created everything from nothing and did so by His words. So why does it matter? Why does Peter say this in refute to what they, he claims they will say? Because by saying what they do, that things are the way that they've always been. They aren't claiming that God doesn't exist. Rather, they're claiming that He's uninvolved. All right, so that's the first thing he acknowledges. The second thing is that God sent the flood. So in the way that God created, He created everything by His Word and through water. And did you notice what Peter does? Because he knows, first off, that they are not, none of them, not even these these hecklers, not even these scoffers, not even these false teachers at this point would deny an historical flood. Did you notice what he does in verse 5? And by the means of these, 
What are these? His Word and water, His means of creation. The world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. God sent the flood. God created by the power of His Word and by the power of that exact same Word. God sent destruction. And that's Peter's logic. His logic is, okay, you're acknowledging that God created by the power of His Word, which should assume authority, which should assume the fact that He is Creator and we are creatures. But by the same authority that God created, hundreds of years ago, that same Word commanded the waters come up and He destroyed the earth except for eight people. And so his logic is that the Lord sent the flood, therefore more judgment is awaiting what? God's command. More judgment is awaiting God's command. After the flood, all that were left were those who believed God's words. Do you see this focus? Like it, it, he's, he's constantly, directly or indirectly, pointing them back to the words of the Lord. The words that created, the words that brought judgment. Who was it that perished in the flood? Those that did not what? Trust the words of the Lord. So Jesus has promised to return, and He will. And in their minds, this is what they're thinking. This this is the logic. This is the way that He wants us to think. Well, just like in the days of Noah, He preached for 120 years, and essentially nobody listened. Todd, Jacob, Brian, you you think you're preaching struggles. (laughs) Imagine. Imagine preaching for 120 years and you got your family. They didn't believe the words of the Lord. And so just like that, before Christ comes the second time, in victory and in judgment, there will be those mocking. There will be those scoffing. Just like in the days of Noah. You're building a what? For what reason? So verses 8 and 9. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And and verse 8 really gets drug out of context a lot. And and it frustrates me really with any scripture, but particularly this scripture, because people try to use this verse to, to, to... like, um, build a timeline of, of when the second coming is going to be, right? And, and so that, that's whatever. Like, I'm not really here to debate any of that kind of thing at all. But what frustrates me the most about it is this is communicated by Peter to these Christians to remind them that, that God's not on the same type restraint and restriction that we are. But it's even more than that because then you look at verse 9, This is the point of what he says in verse 8. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. And so the whole thing about a thousand day... I just need to read it. But do not overlook this one fact that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. It's not like to figure out an equation. It's a message of grace. It's to remind them that God is patiently waiting. And so what you might think is slow, what the scoffers might say is too slow... 
In fact, it's so slow, He's not even coming. He's reminding them that the waiting, in the waiting, the ark door, so to speak, is still open. It's a season of grace. Notice what He says in verse 9. But is patient toward you. It's God's patience. Why has the Lord not returned today? Somebody say it. Thank you. That's it. He's not confused. He's not up there in a holy trinity huddle trying to figure out what to do next. He has a timeline. He has a day. And it's always been that day and it's not changing. And He's patiently waiting in His kindness and in His mercy because He desires repentance. That's what verse 9 is about. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, 8 and 9 really need a good PR person. And I'm going to try to be that. Because 9 is really misunderstood. And I think it's because it's removed from this context. And so I'm going to take an apologetic approach. I'm going to give you three possibilities of what verse 9 could mean. And I'm going to tell you up front, Todd, in case somebody pulls a soundbite off and says, Hank, believe something, just to be clear, the first two are false. Okay? But I'm going to teach them, but the first two are false. There's three possibilities to what it could mean that the Lord isn't wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. A first possibility is this. Everyone is saved. I mean everyone. And and this has a name. This is called universalism. And if this verse is taken literally and one refers to uh, the sovereign will of God, this any and all refer to mankind in general. And universalism teaches that every single human being will be saved. That's convenient too, right? Who cares about the second coming? Who cares about holiness? Who cares about... (laughs) I I think you can follow me here. But this teaching of universalism, it's not as prevalent in our culture as the second one, but it is entirely false. In fact, if this verse taught universalism, then Peter has already contradicted himself at least six times in chapter 2 because he talked about the sure punishment of the ungodly. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit theologically. It doesn't fit grammatically. It's just an error. It's a false teaching. And it's a play on our sensuality. Who wouldn't want to agree that everybody's saved? It's false. So it doesn't mean that. Second possibility is that God hopes everyone is saved. And this thought, the you and the beloved, are said to be those in whom choose themselves to believe. This would be more of like a hypothetical understanding of salvation. In that God did everything necessary for salvation, but He's up in the heavens wringing His hands, hoping, maybe even at times coaching and prodding and encouraging people to make the right choice. This is much more prevalent in our culture. This is false. 
Now, now look, friends, I, I really I want you to trust your elders and any questions you may have around this. These guys are solid. I learned from them. I'm not saying don't ask me questions. I'm just saying let, let your pastors pastor you. If I say something that's confusing and I, and I want them to speak to me and, and I'll make it right. But listen, I, I know a lot, of, a lot of people that we know and love have this view of salvation. They believe that it's on us. They might not say it that way, but it is the logical conclusion of what they teach. And it's this idea, and they use this verse as a proof text, that God just hopes. Man, He's up there just begging us to be saved. And all that Calvary really accomplished was an opportunity, essentially. So Christ didn't purchase salvation at Calvary. What Christ purchased was the opportunity for sinners to come to Him. By the way, that's the soundbite that might... That's false. So just don't let anybody do that, Todd. That, that's, that's a false teaching. The third possibility is the truth of this Scripture. I do believe wholeheartedly that God planned that all His will be saved. Brothers and sisters, if you go back to 1 Peter, you see clearly who this letter, these letters are written to. To the elect. To the exiles. To the believers. To the beloved. When he says we, Peter means we. He makes a clear distinction of those outside of the we. <laughs> it's clear in his teaching, theologically and grammatically, that he is not communicating here universalism. He is not communicating here that God is up there just hoping all of his apostles and disciples can say it good enough so that those other sinners can believe it good enough. God desires, and what God desires, God gets. He's in the heavens and does as He pleases. And so every single one that He desires to save, this is amen stuff, He saves. He'll get them. Some quicker than others from our clock. Remember, His, his clock is more about mercy and kindness and patience. It's God's sovereign will and determined purpose to save all the elect of the church before the Lord returns. That's what He's encouraging these believers in. That He's not coming back until all that God has set His love on are saved. And friends, as, as deep as that is and as confusing as it can seem, it really is the way we want it to be. We don't want them. We don't want the other two. The hope for missions is that God saves. The assurance of our salvation is that God saves. Not an ounce of our salvation is dependent on us. The only thing that we bring to the table is the sin, Spurgeon said, to make it necessary. And it has to be that way. Or we don't have hope. And so he tells them, he tells us, be encouraged. God's not on our timetable. God is functioning in redemptive history with great patience Amen. and mercy and kindness. But judgment is waiting for the ungodly. But you remember back in chapter 2, 
But he knows how to rescue who? (laughs) The godly. Verses 10 through 13 speaks of the day of the Lord and it will come like a thief in the night. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 11, since all these things thus be absolved, what sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? A lot of scholars spend a whole lot of time in 10 and a whole lot of time in maybe the first part of 11 and then they maybe don't think as much about what sort of people ought we to be? Which is the point of Christian preaching. (laughs) To teach us the truths about who God is that show us the lives that we are to exhibit that point back to who God is. What, What sort of people ought we to be? Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So so how are we to live in view of this coming day? The first thing, if you're taking notes, really simple. Be ready. Be ready. Now, He says He'll come like a thief in the night. I'm guessing most of you don't prepare for thieves by looking out the window all the time. Maybe some of you are that paranoid. But how do you prepare for a thief? You prepare. You lock the door. You put your stuff away. I, I was at Midtown a few weeks ago. Had to meet somebody uh, for a lunch meeting. Was in a hurry. Jumped out of my truck. Went to the lunch. Came back out. Of, got in my truck. And every single gun that I had in my truck. And don't think I'm some sort of weirdo. I'm a deer hunter. Duck hunter. And I do have a pistol. And so, like, they were gone. <laughs> but they didn't even have to bust a window. You know why? I wasn't prepared. I left my door unlocked. I mean, how easy was that? And so my preparation wouldn't have been to go, well, I'm not even going in the meeting. I'm going to sit here and wait on the thief. No, you prepare and you carry on. You carry on. You follow the Lord. You take a step at a time, because that's all we can do. A breath at a time. A moment at a time. And we're ready. We are prepared came across this quote by the great Charles Spurgeon. He says, Oh, beloved, let us try every morning to get up as if we were the morning in which Christ would come. And when we go to bed at night, may we lie down with this thought. Perhaps I shall be awakened by the ringing out of the silver silver trumpet heralding His coming. Before the sun arises, I may be startled from my dreams by the greatest of all cries. The Lord has come. The Lord has come. What a check. What an incentive. What a bridle. What a a spur such thoughts as these would be to us. Take this for a guide for your whole life. Act as if Jesus would come during the act in which you are engaged. And if you would not wish to be caught in that act by the coming of the Lord, let it not be your act. It's a way that we prepare and we look to and we're ready for His coming. So the first way is that we are ready. The second thing, and there's some overlap here, is that we, we wait. We wait for it with patience because we have an understanding of what the patience of God is. It's His mercy. And so as we patiently wait, we know that God is also what? 
patiently waiting. Now, it's a different waiting, obviously, because He's God and we aren't. But our waiting and our longing has to be connected to the mercy that God intends to show in the waiting. Also, our role in that, to be proclaimers, to be faithful. Because what does that do? The last thing. Be ready, we wait. Now listen to this. God lets us be a part. We hasten its coming. And so those of us that sit in here and go, today would be a really good day for the Lord to return. Okay, maybe you disagree with that. I think today would be a really good day for the Lord to return. So how do I hasten that? Like how do I, I mean the word literally means to hurry it up. How do you hasten that coming? Look down at verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day. How do I hasten? Well, go back to verse 9. If you want to hasten the Lord's coming... Repent. Because that's what He desires. Believe the gospel if you haven't. If you have believed the gospel, how do we hasten the Lord's coming? We proclaim this gospel so that others repent. Repentance, and that final repentance of that final soul that God intends to save, is what is going to bring His second coming. So again, we're not just sitting looking out the window going, or looking in the eastern skies wondering, all right, is it today, is it today, is it today? No, we actually hurry His coming, not by staring out the window waiting on Him, but by going out and encouraging others to repent and believe the gospel. So we repent, we believe the gospel, and we hasten His return. Your Bible probably has a subtitle, verses 14 through 18, as His final words. And I want to read these to you as we close up our time in 2 Peter. Therefore, beloved, friends and brothers and sisters, therefore is everything He said. From chapter 1 to chapter 2 to all of chapter 3 up to this point. Therefore, Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter's desire in this letter is that they carry on in the faith 
once he is gone. Remember, this is his last will and testament. And what he chooses to leave them with is that they remember the Lord's patience as salvation. And essentially, to say it in more modern terms, is that they don't quit. Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, don't quit. Press on. I pray that your commitment to Scripture continues. I pray that your willingness to communicate and ability to communicate Scripture continues to grow and to develop. And I pray that your hearing and understanding and applying the Scripture that's taught to you and communicated to you continues to grow. I pray most of all because almost everything boils down to this. I pray that you continue to have deep affections and love for the Word of God. You have elders and leaders that love you. And the best way that they've shown you that they love you is by continuing to open this precious Word to you. Continuing to model it not only with what they say, but also with their very lives. Submit to your leaders in the Lord. Trust them as long as they have this Bible open. And promise me this. If you ever hear anything crazy going on down at Covenant on the south end of the county, come snatch us out of the fire. I mean that wholeheartedly. Because we're also a church that wants to have a deep passion and commitment to the Word of God. Not just for our minds, but we see our minds as a pathway to our hearts. And that we are to live lives that bring great glory to God. Because Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, one day, one day, our faith is going to be sight. It's going to be Jesus. It's already all about Jesus, but in that day, there will not be a chance. New heavens and the new earth, everything we're looking forward to. One of the beauties to me of this idea of of everything being new is that there won't be even a temptation that lesser things detract from the glory and the work and the person of Jesus Christ. There won't be a moment that we're in eternity that we'll think we're there for some other reason other than by the powerful blood of Jesus Christ. Right now we live in a time where there are a lot of things that are pulling at us. A lot of things are talking to us. There's a lot of noise, but on that day and for eternity, every lesser thing will do exactly what it's supposed to do, point to the one and the reason that we're there, and that's Jesus. So I join you in longing for that day. Thank you for the time that you've given me with you this weekend. Thank you for your love and commitment to Christ. And I want to thank God for you as we close our time together. Father, I, I thank you so much for the encouragement that I personally have received this weekend. I thank you for the testimony that it is to your faithfulness in our lives together. I thank you for the reminder that you have a people. That all over this globe and every corner of this earth, there are those that are wholeheartedly by your grace committed to the teaching and the preaching and the living out of what is true. 
Father, I pray that You would grant Sovereign Grace Baptist Church wisdom. I pray that You would continue to give them wisdom as they make an impact in this community and to the ends of the earth. I pray that they would have an awareness and a sensitivity to false teaching. I pray that they would be honest and transparent with one another about their vulnerabilities. I pray that they would have a deep concern for their souls, the souls of one another and the souls of those that are yet to be a part of this faith family. Father, I pray that You would protect them from the evil one. That they would recognize sin for what it is and they would flee. Father, that they would be satisfied and content with the treasure that You are. And that they, through Your blood and through Your resurrection, have already received the greatest gift of the Gospel, and that is You. I pray that they would be steadfast, immovable, abounding in hope. Father, I thank You for them. I thank You for this time together. And I thank You for the eternal work that is being accomplished through this congregation. I ask Your blessings in Christ Jesus on them. It's in Christ's name. Amen.